In the 10 years between 1963 and 1973, the United States experienced an unusual glut of presidential deaths. John F. Kennedy's demise in 1963 was quickly followed by the more expected passings of 90-year-old Herbert Hoover in 1964, 78-year-old Dwight Eisenhower in 1969, and 88-year-old Harry Truman in 1972. Finally, in January of 1973, the decade-long span ended with Lyndon B. Johnson's death at the relatively young age of 64. From the moment Johnson left the White House, he had abandoned any self-discipline. He resumed chain-smoking for the first time in 15 years, put on an unusual amount of weight, grew his hair long and retired to Texas where he became a farmer on his beloved LBJ ranch. During his final years, Johnson remained an unpopular figure amongst his fellow Americans. A proud Democrat, he was even warned not to attend his own party's 1972 convention for fear of the reaction he would provoke. In his last speech, a weak and frail LBJ urged a divided nation to continue progress in civil rights. Shortly thereafter, his heart finally gave in. It'd be over 20 years until another president died. This time, it would be Richard Nixon. Johnson's successor had inherited a United States that was riven with divisions over Vietnam, over race relations, and over the 60s Cultural Revolution. The challenges facing any president in this situation were immense. Indeed, LBJ... In the kind of lexicon that only he could have employed, advised Nixon that, to quote, The presidency is like being a jackass caught in a hailstorm. You've just got to stand there and take it. Nevertheless, Nixon promised to actively work to bring the American people together. But in the end, despite such lofty rhetorical intentions, he succeeded only in driving them further apart. This is episode 5 of LBJ's America, The Successor. Do you feel that it's wrong to discriminate against a person solely on the basis of his race or color? Well, the nigger's all right in his place, but they've always been behind us and just tell you the truth. I want them always stay behind me because I never have loved a nigger. And we shall overcome. You To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. A teenager held up a sign, bring us together, and that will be the great objective of this administration at the outset to bring the American people together. Hello and welcome to American History 2. Um, and we are nearing the end of our LBJ's America series. Um, this is the penultimate episode. As you heard in the introduction, this is episode 5, The Successor. And as always, um, I am delighted to be joined by Malcolm Craig. How are we doing, Malcolm? Not bad at all. It's very exciting getting towards the end of this is our first kind of effort at a you know series length uh, set of set of podcasts. So it's good. I think it's gone quite well so far. I've enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, I've enjoyed yeah. exploring the uh, the more political uh, elements of things. I've enjoyed hearing from you because this you know, obviously there's a big part of your research uh, in all of this. Uh, and now we kind of get into part five where we will might look at kind of like things that are perhaps in in my area of research and teaching, particularly looking at in the later part of this episode, into the wider Cold War, the relationship with the Soviet Union, with the People's Republic of China, uh, all that kind of thing. So yeah. where, where do we start? Where do we start this time? Because we left off uh, in 1968. LBJ had decided not to run again uh, in for the Democratic Party nomination. So where do we go from here? Well, I mean, there's a variety of different ways we can go from here, but I think, you know, we have to start with the... With the event which overshadows um, LBJ's announcement very quickly, and it's is the fact that you know, a matter of days after LBJ withdraws from the presidential race, uh, you have the the assassination of Martin Luther King, um, by by James Earl Ray, while he is campaigning down in Memphis, Tennessee, and 
that is just one of the the many assassinations of the 1960s of course you're about to have uh, a couple of months later you're going to have the assassination of of robert kennedy uh, obviously john f kennedy's younger brother um and who was currently running for who who had been running for the the democratic party's nomination and i mean i think it's worth just sort of ruminating a wee bit um on what it must have been like to be a political leader in the united states in not just the, the the mid to late 1960s, but also into the 1970s, and and then famously with with Reagan being almost assassinated in the early 1980s. I mean, it's interesting to think what it must have been like to be a political figure at that time when so many assassinations and assassination attempts are taking place on U.S. soil against U.S. politicians. Yeah, and it's important to emphasise though that you going back to to Martin Luther King though. Uh, not in Memphis as part of his, you know, well-known civil rights activism, but supporting a sanitation workers strike. You know, this is King, the the campaigner for, for social justice. King, the anti-Vietnam war campaigner. All these kind of things. So, King, the critic of American foreign mm, policy. Yeah. King, the radical, yeah. essentially. The, the one that's sort of forgotten in the sort of... Let's all remember the the march in Washington and the I have a dream and the sort of kumbaya element of the civil rights civil rights movement. You know, this is the king with the hard edges. Um, and I mean, but I mean, he still has that rhetorical flourish. I mean, the night before his death, you know, you just have to. Is it the PBS did the documentaries at Roads to Memphis? I think it was called, and in it they sort of play big sections of, of King's last ever speech. Um, where he goes to to a church in Memphis, and sort of delivers this sermon, you know, where he you know talks. I've I've been to the mountain top, or I've seen you know I, I I've seen the mountain. I might not get there with you, and it's incredible to watch, and you know, really harrowing to think that he would he would die, um, or be murdered, um, only a day later. Uh, and so you reflected on though the kind of the the violence, you know, the sense that political figures are are in the firing line of a of a volatile United States at this point in time. And you see this kind of, these concepts of violence and civil disturbance and unrest. We talked about the the urban crisis in episode four, uh, about kind of African-American in particular reactions to what's happening in the United States. But also we see it at major political events. And nowhere do we see this sense of unrest and violence more than at the, the Democrat Democratic Party convention in Chicago in 1968, uh, where there is kind of great uh, kind of unrest and like you know demonization of protesters. There's all sorts of stuff going on. How does how did we get to that point? There is, I mean, some serious violence in Chicago uh, during the convention. How do we get there? Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, obviously this is sort of put very basically at sort of the Vietnam War. And all the divides it's creating brought home to the United States. Um, essentially, what you have going into the Democratic Convention is you've got a a two way fight for who's going to get the nomination. So LBJ is withdrawn. Um, Robert Kennedy is then assassinated um, after winning the California primary. It's debatable whether he would have been able to capture the nomination because there weren't that many primaries. Hubert Humphrey, who is a candidate of the establishment, um, being Johnson's vice president, had already locked up many of the men that you know made these decisions in the smoke-filled rooms. Um, but Eugene McCarthy is still there, the man who finished second to Johnson in New Hampshire and essentially got rid of Johnson from the presidential race. And there had been huge tension between Robert Kennedy and Eugene McCarthy because uh, McCarthy felt that Kennedy jumped on the bandwagon after he'd done the sort of hard slog. But McCarthy's still in there as the anti-war candidate. Hubert Humphrey, for all that he is a sort of liberal hero, is now seen as Johnson's man. I.e., you know, he'll just continue what's going on in Vietnam. And so you have all these anti-war protesters decamp to Chicago for um to protest the idea to try and get McCarthy the nomination, but also just believing that Humphrey's going to get it to be there to protest this. Now, it being in Chicago creates a big problem. Chicago, at this point, politically is known as being run by one man, and that is Richard Daly. And Daly is 
a machine democratic politician who is of the Democrats is firmly in the side of law and order. He hates these new young protesters. He uh, is is of the old school and he doesn't want Chicago to be rolled over and become some big peace and happy sermon um, against against the war. He's he's of the variety that believes you know to be you need to be patriotic. You need to back America and Vietnam no matter um, what's going on. And essentially, the the running battles that will end up happening between the police and the protesters, which will result in tons of protesters being um, beaten and uh, locked up was predicted before the convention starts. There's actually like footage of like, you know, Cron- Walter Cronkite at the convention center saying a democratic convention is about to open in a police state. I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's true, you know? So, and and, and it came to pass. Essentially, that's what happened. So, and, and you do, and Humphrey gets the nomination um, despite lots of booing in the in the convention, huge divisions, you know, people you know fighting with each other in the aisles, like you know shouting things at each other. Um, another peace candidate goes forward as well, and George McGovern, who's even more to the left of McCarthy, and we'll come back to him later in the episode. And it's just it's a huge mess, um, but it's one of those symbolic moments that if you're you're watching this on TV, and you're either looking at it and going, look at these terrible kids protesting, they deserve to get beat up, or you're looking at it going, oh my God, our own government is now attacking us. And and this kind of dichotomous division between kind of like, you know, you know right and wrong, good and evil, right and left, all that kind of thing, is apparent on television as well, because this is the moment where we have ABC have the coverage of the debates fronted by, on the right, William F. Buckley. And on the left, Gore Vidal, you know, two American intellectuals, you know, really going at each other, uh, discussing the politics of the day. And that gets really nasty as well, because, I mean, Buckley, I mean, he states that he he's quite happy to see the protesters kind of like, you know, beaten up and incarcerated and all that kind of thing. And Vidal and Buckley absolutely go at each other. And this is, I mean, some people say that this is the start of this confrontational form of television uh, news and current affairs coverage. But it becomes really nasty. You know, Vidal eventually famously provokes Buckley by calling him, uh, I think it's a, it's a crypto, is a crypto-Nazi he refers to yeah, him? Yeah, something like a crypto-fascist. I think it's either a crypto-fascist yeah. or a crypto, crypto-Nazi. And then Buckley responds with this, you know, homophobic slur against Vidal and you know, and threatens to threatens to sock him in the face. You know, I'll plaster you and you'll stay plastered. And Buckley completely loses his cool over this. And you know it's incredible I mean it's incredible television. Uh you're know, watching these two these two men who hate each other kind of representing these different poles of American society at the time. Yeah. And there's a really good documentary about that. There was it was a Netflix documentary, I believe, uh, Gore versus Vidal, I think it was. Uh, it was. Well there was the Best of Enemies came out in two thousand. Best of Enemies which that was, was it, which yeah. was good. Uh that's the one I mean, yeah. Yeah. So uh so yeah, that's and that's definitely worth watching actually, I think. I mean it's not a perfect documentary, but it certainly captures the, the tension uh and the coverage of the uh the Democratic Convention uh, element yeah. is very good. Because they had been involved in debating the Republican Convention. Earlier, earlier on, this isn't. They didn't just do uh, the one side. So yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, there's lots going on. Yeah, I mean, and the Republican convention. I mean, this this creates a beautiful contrast for for Richard Nixon, who has been nominated as the, the Republican Party's um, nominee. Obviously, Nixon had lost in 1960s. We covered. Then he looked like he'd committed political suicide when he ran for the the governorship of California in 1962 and, and lost. Famously remarking, you know, to the press, you know, well, you don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Um, and then retired to be a private citizen in theory, um, but instead like sort of tried to get the nomination of 64 and kept himself going. And so Nixon's, Nixon um, 
is one of his main themes of his campaign is that he'll restore law and order to the United States and it creates this beautiful contrast where the Republicans have this sort of celebratory nomination convention in Miami uh, where nothing really goes wrong and then there are the Democrats you know the very opposite of law and order the chaos um, in, in Chicago um, and it sets Nixon up with a huge lead going into the general election. He's massively ahead in the polls. So let's talk about the general election. I'd like to, in a moment, once we're getting on to Nixon in power, to talk about when Nixon says law and order, what is Nixon talking about? Who is he appealing to? What does he mean? But so when we get into the general election, who gets the, the nomination for the Democrats? Yeah, so Hubert Humphrey... Uh, Johnson's vice president does get over the line. He has enough of the delegates tied up. Even though he doesn't have much enthusiasm behind him, but initially it seems a very poisoned chalice to have got that nomination. And what you actually have is anti-war protesters. Interestingly, in the initial stages of the general election campaign, don't protest Nixon, even though you would think that you know Nixon was sort of viewed as quite a hawk on foreign policy. You know he made his reputation as an anti-communist sort of cold warrior in the 1950s they protest Humphrey um, uh, you know Humphrey's been part of the Johnson administration even though Johnson gives him no say in decision making or whatever uh, even, and Humphrey himself harbours these private doubts about the war and always has um, which is part of the reason why Johnson just stops talking to him but Humphrey is sort of in this bind whereby if he comes out for peace then he knows that he's going to get cold-shouldered by by Johnson um, and might not get the support from the White House that he would want. But if he doesn't come out for peace, then he's a dead man walking, essentially. You know, Nixon's 20 points ahead. He's been protested. He's been shouted at by anti-war protesters. Every valley he's at. And so Humphrey takes the plunge. And I think it's an early... I think it's in October. Is it late September? Early October. He does a you know, a televised appearance where he comes out and calls for a halt of all the bombing in Vietnam. Johnson's already partially halted the bombing, but Humphrey calls for a full halt to really speed up peace talks. And then lo and behold, Johnson comes out, despite the fact that he is really annoyed at Humphrey at this point for doing that. He comes out and says, peace is at, you know, essentially, he doesn't use these words, but peace is at hand. We've released we've reached a peace, peace agreement and lo and behold the polls just close and Nixon looks like he might lose another close election. Right, because Nixon is promising because, you know, Humphrey comes out in favour of peace but Nixon has been promising peace with honour is his oh, slogan. slogan. And also kind of claiming he's got this secret plan to resolve the Vietnam War. But in the background and this is there's the peace conference taking place in Paris with the, the North Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese, the United States, and everything. And it looks as if they're going to get some kind of agreement. And then suddenly, the South Vietnamese back away. Yep, and and, and enter... How, however, could that have happened? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just one of the... You know, the, the Anishinaabe affair, which I think we've touched on before in, in another podcast somewhere... It is one of history's great fascinating um, incidents. And I remember actually when I first heard about it, there was still debate over whether it actually ever happened. Now there's sort of concrete proof and everybody agrees it did happen, but it, it was shrouded in mystery that long that even by 2010, I think people were still sort of unsure if this is just sort of an apocryphal event or if it ha- like because everybody hates Nixon or whether it actually happened. So let's clarify exactly what it is. Essentially, the Nixon campaign is back-channeling to the South Vietnamese Thieu government, promising them that if Nixon gets in power, they will get a better deal. Not to not to agree to a peace agreement, because Nixon will get them a better deal. Exactly. Um, and he's using a woman called Anna Chenault as the back-channel, who I believe was the chair of Republican Women for Nixon, I think. But she but she had she was she was she had a lot of links in South Asia as well, and. Yeah, so she, hence why it's called the Anna Chenault Affair. Um, she's used as the back channel to tell Chu to pull out the talks. And um, essentially it works. And uh, when Van Chu pulls out the talks, the peace agreement collapses and Nixon wins the election in a squeaker again. Um, as And many, many of his aides have openly admitted since that had the peace talks 
gone through, um, had peace been at hand, they firmly believed that Nixon was going to lose the election. And as part of the Chinook affair, a political scientist called Henry Kissinger is involved in all of this as well, who had been smithering between Democrats and Republicans and eventually, uh, lo and behold, becomes Nixon's national security advisor when Nixon goes into power. You know, who knew? Uh, so Nixon's in power. Uh, there have been dirty tricks along the way, as you would su- suspect uh, from Nixon. This is proven. There's lots of documentary evidence now that there was this back channel, that dirty tricks played a part in sabotaging. The one, the one, the one thing I'll cards. say, the d- dirty tricks in presidential campaigns was not just the reserve of Richard Nixon. Oh, no, as no, with no. everything, he took it to the nth degree. Yes. But, yeah. uh, you know, like the Kennedys used to have this guy called Dick Tuck. Yeah. Great name, great name who used to like follow. I think they did it to Nixon. Like, and he would, they would play pranks on them to try and make their opponents look stupid and everything. So, and, you know, as I think I said in the past, there was some dirty stuff going on in the 1960 election when uh, Nixon lost um, by a very threadbare margin in a couple of key states. So, I mean, but yeah, the Anna Chenault affair was bordering on treason. So it was, you know, as I said, to the nth degree. But anyway, you were saying, sorry. So Nixon is now, as of. You know, January 1969, Nixon is president. He's finally got there. I mean, he's finally got this position he has longed for. This position of power and influence. He's finally there. So what does he do? Is he continuing the the great society? Is he trying to reform America in his own image? And what is this stuff about law and order? So just a general view of Nixon's position coming into government and then think about what is this law and order thing he talks about. Yeah, I mean, so as as the intro um, to every single um, episode of this uh, series says, you know, it has the quote in there where Nixon says, you know, a teenager held up a sign saying, bring us together. And that will be the great aim of this administration, to bring the American people together. Now... Did Nixon actually ever want to do this when you look at his record? I think on one hand he did because he saw bringing the American people together as a way to become a great president and as with a lot of presidents, ego is one of the main reasons they've got this far and therefore they want to be they want to be the next face on Mount Rushmore. Um, so, so in a sense, I think he did want that. But in another sense, Nixon was always happy to practice the politics of division if he felt it benefited him politically. Which brings me on to your question about law and order. Um, Law and order is a tricky political phase to parse because there is a grain of reason behind it and a grain of about a big dollop of oh, this will appeal to a certain group of people against another group of people. So to take the, the sort of grain of truth, the American American the 1960s did see a rise in crime. Um, it's debated how much of a rise in crime, particularly violent crime, because statistical evidence, there's arguments that perhaps, well, they just started recording the statistics better in the 1960s. But there was a, there was, there was a famous sort of that the perception of a rise in crime in society anyway. The media covered it as if there was this huge rise in violent crime. Um, there was a feeling that you couldn't go out with get without getting mugged. And so to say to call for a law and order was seen as a in some senses a viable campaign issue. Um, you know, the Democrats say it as well eventually. Um but law and order was also seen as a way to appeal to white racism. Um, that to say law and order was essentially to say that look at these black people in the cities um, who the government has been spending all this money on, the war on poverty, all this money has been going to these black people and how ungrateful they are. They are, you're being mugged by them, they are participating in riots in your cities. If you vote for us, if you vote for Richard Nixon, that won't be happening anymore. I'll be looking out for your interests. Um, Yes? So this is, is this part of what becomes called the Southern strategy? The fact that the Republican Party is now making kind of dog whistle attempts to appeal to disaffected former Southern Democrats, white Southern Democrats, who are now turning away in their droves from from the Democratic Party because of the advances of civil rights. 
yeah, in a sense, the Southern strategy is a bit of a misnomer about what Nixon's trying to do. Um, it sort of obscures, it's a broader appeal than that. It's a, it's a suburban strategy across the nation, it's sort of to appeal to, you know, sort of white conservatism in the suburbs. You know, a lot of people who had been generally fine with the civil rights advances of the early 1960s but are less comfortable with the economic advancements of um or uh, sorry of the, uh, who are less comfortable with the, the sort of more violent turn of the civil rights movement and the more the more aggressive turn i should say of the civil rights movement and also as well as the suburbs to to sort of have to try and win the support of the white working classes in both the south and the north um, people that were inclined to vote for George Wallace in 1968. We didn't mention him in the 1968 election, but Wallace is, by third-party standards, an incredibly successful candidate um, who who wins you know states in the Deep South and comes close in a lot of other states and has some sort of strength in these northern cities like Chicago, like Detroit, like Cleveland. And he's an un- unreconstructed segregationist. Yes, but that's not... I mean, that's obviously crucial to understanding but he's also he appeals to this resentment of white working classes who who feel that African Americans have been getting all this attention from the government recently at the expense of 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 them um is this, so, is this what we would now refer to these days as identity politics yes yeah 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 so so all so politics is about identity anyway but there you go yeah 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 so i mean law and order is just it's, it's to, you know, you could do an entire podcast series on law and order. I believe our friend Paddy Andelik teaches an entire course on the idea of law and order um, in his job. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky to unpick everything, but that gives you a sort of basic sense of it. Right. So, law and order is a big issue. We're going to come on to, like, Vietnam in a moment. We think about, like, Nixon's, Nixon in the wider world. So, the Great Society. Johnson has been kind of going at the Great Society. There's obviously problems caused by, by Vietnam. Is there a willingness to carry on with the Great Society and Great Society programs that the government, the federal government, will be interventionist and activist in trying to improve the lives of ordinary Americans from a variety of backgrounds? Is that still something that is part of the ethos of the Nixon administration? For the first couple of years, most definitely. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things to note when Nixon comes into office. First of all, Nixon is the first president since oh god the person in the 19th century is now escaping me but he's the first president of the 20th century to come into government without either party either either chamber of congress belonging to his own party so the democrats are still in a majority and he's a republican president so he has to deal with a democratic congress that's still broadly supportive of of great society measures so he's a minority president in that sense also he only gets 40 something low 40s percent of the vote um, because of Wallace's third party candidacy. He's, you know, not elected by some huge mandate. Second of all, this is still, despite all the divisions going on in American society, American society and the economy is still prosperous when Nixon comes into office. 1969, 1970, still years of this economic juggernaut thundering along. You can afford government programs, even though Vietnam's creating a drain on finances, is still the general, you know, impression that this is a prosperous time where yeah, we can help the poor and it's not going to hurt the middle class. We don't have to tax you more to do it. You know, prosperity will pay for it. So so, so what happens then? Because you say for the first couple of years, so we'll come on to, like, what happens? Are there particular figures within the Nixon administration who are kind of invested in, in these ideas of that kind of like are redolent of the Great Society? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously Nixon, Nixon appoints a really ideologically diverse um, group of people to, to back him um, most notably the, the most known people in the next administration H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman Haldeman's a conservative John Ehrlichman's sort of a moderate liberal when it comes to domestic politics um, but the, the one that's sort of front and centre in the huge shock um, in, in when he gets appointed is Daniel Podrick Moynihan um, who was a former uh, member of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, um, a liberal, albeit a sort of hetero- heterodox liberal who was, who was happy to sort of criticise his own side, um, and who's, who had left the Johnson administration in controversy over the, the Moynihan report, which, la- which laid much of the blame of black poverty on the family structure of, of African-Americans 
um, notably the, the sort of rise in single parent uh, families headed by mothers. So and, and he faced a lot of flack for for having said that. And he comes in and Nixon's biggest domestic policy proposal, his sort of greatest domestic legacy in a sense, is something that never passes. Um, he proposes the family assistance plan, which sounds incredibly boring, but is actually a radical approach. And had it passed, it, it, the American American society would probably be very different just now. Um, I don't know for the, whether for better or for worse how it would have worked out, but essentially he proposes a guaranteed minimum income, um, whereby every family would receive a minimum of $1,600 a year. Um, and... This is too complicated to go into in great depth, but it would have completely changed the landscape of the welfare system in America, um, particularly in the American South, where the welfare offering was absolutely pitiful. Huge numbers of people would have received a much greater income than they'd ever had before. Um, it doesn't pass um, because a combination of conservatives who don't want to do this uh, for obvious reasons, and liberals who don't feel the income floor is enough, they want to give people a lot more money than that, they combine to kill it. But it gives you a sense of how Nixon is sort of continuing this general faith that government can do good in his early years. And, and also the Nixon, what happens in the Nixon administration is also we start seeing some important environmental policies as well. I mean, not necessarily driven by Nixon himself, but important environment, the establishment of the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, the EPA is one of them during the time of the Nixon administration. So environmental issues are being attended to yeah. as well. You you also get, despite the sort of conservative rhetoric on race, Nixon actually accelerates the pace at which schools are desegregated. It had actually gone quite slow under the Johnson administration. They introduced the first sort of uh, more radical step in affirmative action. Um, you know, sort of actively looking for, for sort of quotas to fill of African-Americans in jobs and other minorities in jobs, uh, whereby it being done a slightly less aggressive way in, in the Johnson administration. He promotes women in government more than had previously been done and, and becomes out in favour of the Equal Rights Amendment, which, which will eventually pass, although not be ratified. So, yeah, I mean, there, there, is, there is a reason why... Um, Nixon is you know, sometimes mockingly, sometimes seriously termed the last liberal president of the United States. It is, though, a, a moniker you can only really give to his first couple of years in office. You see a decisive conservative turn um, towards from 1971 onwards and until he's removed from office. And what provokes, very briefly, what provokes this conservative turn in the Nixon administration? Uh, I think it's. I think you can basically put it down to there's there's other factors at play. The Republican Party is becoming more conservative, but the main thing that really helps conservative conservative arguments is the economic downturn. Um, by 1970-71, the economy no longer looks as good as it does, um, and it's about to hit the fan in a variety of ways when the oil crisis comes around, um, and and so so yeah, you get this. You get a lot of economic issues, which means it's not easy to pay for things without taxing people more. And you've also, as the Pentagon Papers come out, as the Vietnam War drags on even further, you've just got a, a general loss of faith in government. Um, and, and Nixon is sort of finds it more comfortable then to become a conservative at that point and to to and he essentially wants to try and scrap the war on poverty and and scrap other initiatives that liberals had passed in the nineteen sixties. So let's turn to Vietnam and then the wider world, the Nixon administration's relationship with the wider world in this post-LBJ era. Because obviously, when Nixon comes into power in January 1969, the Vietnam War is still ongoing. It's still carrying on. It's going to carry on for several more years and have many hundreds of thousands of more deaths on the Vietnamese side, whether north or south. So what are, what's Nixon's plans? I mean, you know, one of the big things that come out of this is kind of the idea of Vietnamization. You know, that is something that kind of represents more widely what becomes called the Nixon Doctrine. That we're going to give military aid, we're going to give economic support to our allies who are facing communism and all that kind of thing. But we're not going to use it. They're going to use their troops. We're not going to use our troops. So you start seeing this drawdown of American troops from Vietnam. You know, the boys are coming home, all that kind of thing. But at the same time, he's also ramping up the war. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, the I think it all stems from the, one of Nixon's problems when he gets into office, and you bring, brought it up earlier, is the slogan, Peace with Honour. It sounds great, but what is an honourable peace if it's not peace with victory? Essentially, you know, like, what, what, what does that mean? Have you ever come across one where people believe they've got an honourable peace when they've not won? Or at least even, or Americans in particular. I'm trying to, I'm racking, I'm racking my brains here. Yeah, yeah, you know, Americans who have won every single war they've ever been part of, or at least not lost, you know, the War of 1812, as we discussed, a very, very different dynamic. But, so what does an honourable peace look like? Well, it looks like a victorious peace, but the people want peace and victory doesn't seem to be at hand. So what do you do? So, So Nixon comes up with a variety of solutions, none of which work. Um, the, uh, for the main one as you said is Vietnamization the idea that we're going to finally do what Johnson said he would do in 1964 Asian boys can fight that war you know we'll send all these um, uh, we'll send loads of money to beef up the Arvin, the South Vietnamese army so that they can fight completely ignoring the fact that the, the Arvin have been unable to fight very well at all up to this point and we'll couple that with an increased bombing of the North um, to try and demoralise them, so we'll rely on air power more. We'll secretly invade Cambodia. We'll secretly sort of start bombing and invading there to try and stop the Ho Chi Minh Trail and, and everything there. And crucially, it's going to be great. The American people are going to love it. They're going to see American boys come home. And that, that that's the main thing. The, the Vietnamization you will see on the news, American boys coming home as a result of it. And at the, at the same time as this kind of Vietnamization is happening, I mean, there are increasing doubts within, within South Vietnam, even amongst you know, South Vietnamese communists, anti-communists, sorry, about the American role in the war. I mean, there's an, there's an increasing level of resentment in South Vietnam about the American presence you know, they look at cities like Saigon and see what's happening there. All the, you know, the the poverty and the prostitution and some corrupt officials making vast amounts of money off the American presence. And there's a huge amount of resentment there. And at the same time, the the South Vietnamese government is trying to establish itself as a as a legitimate state in the wider world. It's trying to establish relationships with the rest of the world and. You know, there's sometimes this kind of like false assumption that South Vietnam is purely a puppet of the United States. And there's been some great research uh, by like scholars like Sean Fear uh, recently on how this is absolutely not the case. The, the South Vietnam is determined to make itself a legitimate state and have the relationships with the rest of the world that a legitimate state does. And also this... This resentment of the United States presence within the South, even amongst you know South Vietnamese, you know, ardent anti-communists. Yeah, yeah, and I mean the uh, they're probably not helped in their confidence about the Americans by the other stuff Nixon tries. I mean, because you you get him doing some bizarre stuff when he comes in. You know, they had the Institute Operation Duck Hook, where basically Kissinger is sent away with a cabal to think of crazy ideas to try and end the war. You know, they explore like nuclear weapons being used as one option. Um, then of course you have the the development of Madman Theory. Uh, which is just the most wonderfully quintessentially Nixonian thing that ever happens, where, you know, he tries to convince the ideas that they've, they'll sneak the word to Ho Chi Minh, who, by the way, is either dead or about to die at this point, because yeah, Ho Chi Minh dies in 1969, um, that, you know, well, you know, Nixon's a, Nixon's a madman, you know, he hates the communists so much, and he's got his finger on the nuclear button. You know, if you guys don't sue for peace, God knows what will happen. And amazingly, the South Vietnamese do not fall for that slice. Uh, sorry, the North Vietnamese don't fall for that sleight of hand. Yeah, I know because I mean because you know Ho Chi Minh is a kind of uh, is a relatively peripheral figure by yeah, this point. I mean, he's like, you know, this point, I mean, you know, it's, it's Le Duan and figures like that who are really, really in charge. Yeah, and this expansion of the war. I mean, this vast bombing of like Cambodia and Laos and everything that creates even more misery in Southeast Asia. I mean, it's this this bombing of Cambodia, for example, leads to. You know the rise of the Khmer Rouge in the nineteen seventies and the the horrors that uh, that confront Cambodia in the nineteen seventies because of the rule of the Khmer Rouge. Some like two million out of a population of six million. Yeah, it's or eight the, I mean, the, the, die. The, the, like it's crazy. The death rate in Cambodia is is off the charts. It's, you know, so I mean, so Nixon is trying all these things, uh, increasing the bombing, pulling out American troops. 
uh, all of this kind of stuff. And nothing seems to be having any effect. But he's also trying to, he's doing stuff at home with Vietnam. I mean, he's very much in favour of this polar, the polarising nature of trying to polarise the American people against each other and creating this culture clash out of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Nixon gets a wee bit of a honeymoon at first, whereby like the American people say, okay, we'll see if we can make peace and Vietnamization looks good. He institutes the draft lottery, so no longer it's, it's not as easy for college kids to get deferments and everything, so he looks like he's being fair. And then the sort of word gets out about the is revealed of the Cambodia bombings, and this sort of spurs anti-war protests back into action. And then in October, the mid October nineteen sixty nine, you get the biggest peace movement there's ever been at this point, where you get the the moratorium against um, the war in Vietnam, which is basically people all around the country, and this isn't just in the cities where you would expect to find. You know, you're in New York and San Francisco where you'd expect to find peace protests, but in small town America and big towns, small towns, rural areas, stopping work for a day to protest the war in Vietnam. And and Nixon is literally in the White House writing notes to himself saying, Stay the course. Do not let do not be swayed. <laughs> like and all this. And his big gambit at this point, because he 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 doesn't want to just pull out of Vietnam, so he's like, I need to get the American people on board in some way, is to divide them, um, but to have a base of people, a big base of people who will be on your side. And that's where you get the silent majority speech, um, which Nixon gives, I believe it's in either late October or early November, I think it is, uh, where he basically appeals to, you know, the great silent majority of Americans, the non-shouters, the non-protesters, the patriots, essentially. You know, the people that are fighting this war, whose kids are fighting this war, um, the people of small town America, um, and basically tries to turn them against, you know, the anti-war movement, who many of them already were against. You know, the anti-war movement's never popular in the United States. Um, and essentially makes it this sort of culture, cultural moment um, to try and get the these people on his side. And the silent majority speech is a huge success. He's inundated with letters, polling shows a rise in support. Um, and he's really successful in dividing the country, but in creating this base of support that will continue to back him no matter what. Um, at least until the very end with Watergate. But this leads into issues as we go through into 1970. And so, we, but we also see. I mean, the protests turn turn even darker. So, and it's someone like Kent State, you know, the the shooting of student protesters, and some of them not even you know, students at at Kent Kent State University by the National Guard. I mean, how does Nixon react to that, and how does that play into this this culture class, his division of you know people into like bums and heroes. The heroes are the ones who are out fighting. It's their parents, all the kind of bums, or the the student protesters, the anti-war protesters, all of that kind of stuff. How does that play into it? Nixon basically makes a vague statement, um, which essentially sounds like, uh, well, I guess it's kind of like the anti-war protesters had it coming to them. Um, and I mean, you know, the Kent State murders. I think we we covered it quite extensively on the first ever time we discussed the Vietnam War way way back you know, in 2015 or whatever it was. Um, but, but you know, just to reiterate, four kids killed by the, the National Guard, two of them went anti-war protesters. One of them was even a member of the, the ROTC, the, the Reserve Officer Training Corps, which which was uh, sent a lot of officers to Vietnam. Uh, and he just happened to be walking by. Um, they were the most popular murders in the United States, somewhere over, I think it was high 50s, low 60s, believed they were justified in terms of the percentage had been pulled afterwards um, and yeah Nixon basically agrees with that sentiment by all accounts but you have this bizarre moment and it's uh, have you ever seen the film Nixon Oliver Stone's film Nixon and, uh, and so I use this in teaching where there's you know one of the more bizarre casting decisions Anthony Hopkins is Richard Nixon um, and he goes in the middle of the night to the Lincoln Memorial and where he bumps into loads of students who are there because they're about to launch a huge day of protest in response to Kent State. Universities all around the United States are about to shut down and protest about what is going on. And Nixon takes his butler to visit the Lincoln Memorial at 4am in the morning or something, 5am. 
and he's surrounded by these students and then in the film they engage in this weird chat where the students eventually end up challenging him on the war and he talks about the system and how he can't stop it and everything and I and I play that in a lecture and I'm just like now you probably think this is a made up event that where like you know Oliver Stone's just taking creative license to get at the tensions between to put Nixon and the anti-war protesters in the same place the mad thing is that it happened like you know and and the story behind it happening is just it's pure Nixon it's hilarious like he gets up at like 4am he calls a female journalist and she like says to her husband when they put the phone down well that was odd you know like that man wasn't drunk but I'd feel a lot better if he was (laughs) and he starts blasting classical music which is what wakes up his butler in the first place and he's like, Manolo Sanchez, his butler, I've like, have you ever been to the Lincoln Memorial, Manolo? And he's like, well, no. Well, let's go. And, you know, you have these terrified Secret Service agents that are just like, oh, this is probably not a good idea. You know, we've talked about the age of a political assassination. But no, Nixon goes. And the entire way through the conversation, the Secret Service are trying to tell him, oh, Mr. President, you've got a call waiting for you in the limo. You need to go there. And he keeps fobbing them off. And he and he starts talking to the, the these students about American football, and eventually he starts telling them, "Oh, you've got to travel the world," and eventually tells them that the place they should visit is Asia. <laughs> so, you know, of ironies of all ironies, but yeah. So eventually, you know, they get back into the limo. The Secret Service are relieved. The protests go on as planned, um, and and yeah. One of the most bizarre episodes in American history is finished. Nixon, described by one scholar as the most peculiar and haunted of presidents. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, and um, but obviously, on a more serious note, you get a, a severe back. You get a severe backlash to the Kent State shootings with the Hard Hat riots, um, which take place shortly thereafter in New York, where you know construction workers in New York attack. Anti-war protesters with you know their 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 tools and clubs and everything and, and beat a lot of them, um and in response to the anti-war protesters that was going on in New York, so you get a real darkening of the national mood essentially, you know that we're very much at the end of whatever was the idealistic nineteen sixties have have long since passed. So, I think at this point then it's probably good to turn away from Vietnam and what's Vietnam's provoking at home and to think about the world world to get basically to get you know Malcolm, Malcolm's take on what is going on and the rise of detente uh, which we've been waiting for in all this episode so essentially out with the Vietnam or maybe tangential to Vietnam what is the Nixon administration's foreign policy because I think I think in a way it would surprise our listeners it's it's all it's all related to to Vietnam in many in many ways. So there's policies of well triangulation and linkage, which is something that the Kissinger and Nixon really believe in. Vietnam is an influence on this. In order to try and resolve the situation in Vietnam, they need to have the major communist powers on side. Now, if we recall, by the mid nineteen sixties, the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union have moved apart. The Sino Soviet split. There is no longer, there never was, but there's no longer this unified communist world. And in many ways, the PRC and the USSR are in direct opposition. In 1969, while Vietnam is going on, they fight a small border war with each other. So Nixon and Kissinger especially are looking at the wider world and thinking, okay, for Nixon and Kissinger, it's all about, it's power politics, it's realpolitik, all that kind of thing. And they look at... The Soviet Union, and they look at China, so like, if we can establish relationships with them, we can use this concept of linkage. Like, if we influence one thing here, that'll influence this thing here and this thing here. So we can help China and the USSR to resolve the situation in Vietnam, even though they are in opposition, by saying, oh, look, we've got this agreement with the USSR to the Chinese, and the Chinese will go, oh, right, okay, well, we better <laughs> sort something out there as well. So there's this kind of, like, dual track of... Uh, trying to get some kind of relationship with with communist China, which has been diplomatically isolated from the United States since the establishment of the People's Republic in 1949, and also moving towards this concept of detente, this thaw in relations between the Soviet Union and the United States. Am I, am I right in thinking that 
a lot of conservatives, you know, in, in Nixon's own party or just in, in the conservatives and Democratic party are really unhappy with this idea of detente, even though it's sort of seen as a, for, for the average view, average person looking on, it might look good that there's a reduce, reduction in tensions. Why why are people opposed to detente? Well, there's a, there's a lot of uh, conservative and liberal anti-communists who just see kind of any kind of accommodation with uh, with the Soviet Union and with China as anathema to the last, you know, 20-odd years of American foreign policy and American relations with the world. But there are also significant issues of things like, uh, you know, human rights is becoming uh, a significant issue in the world. And, you know, human rights issues, especially looking at the Soviet Union, especially the way the Soviet Union is treating the Jewish population of the Soviet Union, becomes an ever bigger issue uh, into the 1970s. Uh, there's also the sense that as we move into the 1970s, is this an era of limits? Are we seeing the limitations on American power, on American influence in the world? Hello, Jimmy Carter. Hello, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> uh, but also, there's a, a sense within the United States as, as we move into the 70s of, of decline. Is the US a declining power? In many ways, for Nixon and Kissinger, detente is an effort to try and arrest decline and re-establish some kind of American power and influence in the world. So would you sort of, is it attempt to give it breathing space to recover its power or are they, are they not accepting any American weakness and they just think this is a smarter way to go? Oh, I think this is, it's a combination of a lot of things. I mean, this is an era of increasing inter interdependence, of accelerating globalization. And Nixon and Kissinger in many ways recognize these factors, that the world is becoming more interdependent, that, that globalization the interconnectedness of the world is becoming more and more important and you need to take account of those connections. So part of it is to do with that. It's also the fact that there's a nuclear issue here, that the Soviet Union is getting to the point where it's reaching nuclear parity with the United States. Now, in terms of like warheads and all that kind of, yes, but in terms of technological sophistication, absolutely not. Uh, but so there's a sense, okay, what do we do in a situation where we, are, we no longer have this nuclear predominance? where the Soviet Union is of an equal power to us, how do we cope with what that does to the world? So detente is, is very, very complicated. There's a lot of stuff going on and it's a lot of issues. There's Vietnam, there's the nuclear issue, there's American domestic politics, there's economic decline. I mean, yes, the US has a certain amount of relative decline as nations like Japan and West Germany, their economies expand and they become more influential in the global arena. So it's relative decline, but in terms of absolute decline, there isn't as much, but perhaps that doesn't matter because the United States is perceived in some quarters to be to be a declining power. Cool. And the, and the final point then to sort of ask you on this is the is the China visit, which you know takes the world by storm. Richard Nixon all of a sudden they wake up one morning and there he is in China, and <laughs> you know what's Nixon doing in China? So I want I want you just uh, maybe tell us the significance of that visit and also just parse the sort of phrase. Only Nixon, Nixon can, can, go, can to go to China. China. You know, why couldn't Lyndon Johnson go to China? Like, So this is all established. The, the visit to China is is really set in train by like Henry Kissinger. Uh, and using uh, America's South Asian ally, Pakistan, in this. So it's all handled through Pakistan. So Kissinger visits Pakistan and secretly everyone thinks he's not feeling very well and is in this hilltop retreat and he's actually not he's secretly gone to an airport and flown to China to have these negotiations with the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese leadership to try and broker this deal where Nixon can visit China remember there have been there have not been diplomatic relations between the People's Republic of China and the United States China is in many ways diplomatically isolated from a lot of nations around the world and then suddenly this is all to do with South Asian relations, with Vietnam, with global relations, with the emerging detente with the Soviet Union. It's, it's complex, it's interlinked, there's all sorts of interplays going on here. And eventually in 1972, the year also that Nixon visits the Soviet Union as well, he also visits the People's Republic of China, the first American president since the establishment of the PRC to visit. And he's hosted by all the senior leaders uh, of the Chinese Communist Party, Mao Zedong, etc. Now, uh, this is essentially part of a... This is political campaigning by Nixon. His foreign visits, especially to Moscow and to China, 
are indivisible from his domestic political campaigning. It's all part of this thing, to position him as a great statesman, to position him as a great president. And this thing, only Nixon can go to China. You know, it sounds flippant, but Nixon had been such a staunch and visceral anti-communist throughout his entire political career. Of course he can go to China, because he's such an anti-communist, he's not going to be corrupted, he's not going to be kind of kowtowing to uh, Chinese communists, he's not going to be giving them anything, he's going to be tough in the face of Chinese communists while trying to establish this relationship. So only Nixon can go to China because he's been such an anti-communist throughout his entire life. So it's, it's a comp complex thing, but there's, the important thing to recall is that the, the globalisation and interdependence are two forces in the world that are crucially important in terms of the relationship between states, economics, finance, communication, all of these kind of things. And this is changing the way the world works. So I think it's been, there's a statistic between 1964 and 1980, global trade triples in volume. In, that's, in a, in that's a, quite in a statistic. In a space of, you know, 16 years, there's a tripling of global trade. And this is happening at the time of the Nixon administration. Part of that is to do with one very, very simple thing, containerization. Putting stuff in containers and putting it on ships. Also, easier air transport, quicker air transport, all of these kind of things. So the, the world is globally is changing. I mean, so I mentioned there the fact that these major foreign diplomatic visits by Nixon are indistinguishable from campaign events. And it's absolutely true, because in 1972, he's running for re-election. And he does things like he arrives back from these foreign visits, goes straight to Congress to give a tele te televised addresses about you know what he's been doing diplomatically and how you know, great these things are all developing in these negotiations. So it's all part of his 1972 election campaign to try and win re-election. Uh, so I think we should probably talk about that very briefly because this is a period where we see kind of not only an election victory for Nixon, but also the start of the real start of his downfall. So 1972, who's on the Democratic, who, who's the Democratic opposition to Nixon? So in the, the favourite for the Democratic nomination is a man called Edmund Muskie. Um, who was, I think he ran as the vice presidential candidate for Hubert Humphrey in 1968 and was widely seen to have been very effective on the campaign trail. He's a senator from Maine. Um, he's the man that the Nixon team failed. He, he's the one they fear. Um, he's the one that they're trying to play all the dirty tricks on and they do play many dirty tricks on to try and get him um, out of the race because the man they really, really want to get is Senator George McGovern, the man who finished third in 1968 that I mentioned earlier. Now, they want to get McGovern because, first of all, he has been the most outspoken dove on the Vietnam War. He has been for peace. He remortgaged his own house or took out a second mortgage on his own house so that he could do a debate on the Vietnam War um, for television um, to try and show up for what it was. He accused, the, he told the Senate when they voted against his motion to, I think it was to stop funds to invade Cambodia, he you know, told them this chamber reeks of blood. Um, and he, and he, on the domestic policy side, he was sort of, about as pie in the sky, I guess, with his domestic proposals as you could get in the American political system. He goes way far left. He proposes, you know, I told you about the family assistance plan. He proposes a huge, a much more vast um, minimum income for families that, that Nixon proposed to the point where it looks unrealistic to a lot of people, especially among people who are now, now that the economy's worsening and they don't want to pay for these things. So, and, and he, get, he basically gets tarred in the, the primary campaign as the candidate of amnesty, acid, and abortion. Um, so to, just to take each of those there, acid, obviously, to tie him to the sort of cultural hippie revolution of the, the, and the drugs of the 1960s that many people frowned upon. Amnesty, as in he wanted to forgive all draft orders and let them back into the United States or let them out of jail. And abortion, you know, this rising cultural revolt against um, abortion, which it, which should, which sort of signified a wider cultural uh, conservatism that was about to happen on the religious right. Um, so, so Nixon does everything he can to basically get McGovern as his opponent, and he succeeds. So he succeeds McGovern as his opponent, and well, Nixon walks the election essentially. 
I mean, he wins by he wins by what McGovern wins one state. Yeah, McGovern McGovern wins. I think is it Massachusetts Massachusetts because they have like bumper bumper stickers. Don't blame me. I voted for McGovern. Yeah, Um, and also he won something. uh, Some crazy stat like he won four percent of the nation's counties. Four percent. Next one, ninety six percent. That's not much. That's not much. But yeah, in the midst of all of this, because I think we're heading towards the the conclusion of this particular episode. In the midst of all of this, Nixon is the Nixon administration is big on dirty tricks. I mean, they do all sorts of dirty, dirty tricks when McGovern has the nomination to try and sabotage the McGovern campaign. But most famously out of all of this, we have the Watergate break-in to the Watergate Hotel in Washington, to the offices of the Democratic National Committee. And I think we need to talk briefly about Watergate, even though it's such an incredibly complex event and there's a lot we still don't know about it it is the thing that does eventually bring nixon down and he resigns from office yeah i mean the i mean a sort of glib way of describing watergate is it's not as you've described the watergate break-in that is what ends nixon it is the cover-up that that then follows it the attempts to pay hush money to people that were involved in the break-in um to keep people that were going to go to jail essentially quiet. Um, and the the fact that Nixon is essentially, eventually he is caught on, caught on tapes saying things, even though they try to delete incriminating parts of tapes. Um, and it's just a whole, as what will be called the long national nightmare of this drip, drip, drip feed as Nixon tries to cover up. Um, tries to blame other people, tries to say he had nothing to do with it. These were just people acting on their own accord. And and so many fascinating stories come out. I mean, my favourite, well, not f- favourite's the wrong word because it involves people dying, um, but it's the the incredible part of it is that there's a plane crash in Chicago, I think it is, and on board was the wife of one of the plumbers, um, the, the, the group that were involved in the in the break-in and she was carrying a big wad of money on that flight and when investigators get there they find all these dollar bills you know from there and they put two and two together and eventually figure out who it was that had the money Uh, and that leads to questions well why did she have this suitcase of money and that's one of the key bits of evidence to start to begin to link the white house um, to to Watergate, but during the nineteen seventy two presidential election, it, it it becomes a story towards the end, but nobody really thinks it's a big deal. It's only after Nixon's reelected on a landslide um, that it really begins to undermine his entire administration. But I mean, Watergate, I mean, just is we use that as a term, but that represents an entire, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg of the the Nixon administration's dirty tricks campaigns against a lot of people and it goes back to things like the pentagon papers to kind of issues to do with the vietnam war and also kind of nixon's kind of own you know personal paranoia and his you know the belief you know for nixon that that everyone is doing dirty tricks everyone's out to get him so therefore they've their dirty tricks just have to be better there have to be more of them you know all of these kind of things it's just this vast uh, corruption uh, of political power and corruption of the office of the the presidency, and you know eventually there are you know impeachment proceedings uh, brought against uh, Nixon, but he resigns before anything can done done about it. August nineteen seventy four, he resigns from office, and his vice president Jerry Ford becomes president. Yep, yep, um, and I think one of the main kind of takeaways from the whole episode, aside from as you said, Nixon was just hella paranoia. Um, was just the the it, it sort of this is sort of seen as the height of the imperial presidency. Um, this idea of the president had gone so strong that they just felt that they could do whatever they wanted. That this was the the peak influence of the president, and thereafter Congress tried to bring it in check. Now I think many people argue that has since reversed itself, and we're sort of back to having an imperial presidency. Um, and also it just sort of showed as well the. I think the main takeaway from Watergate, we'll discuss this more on the legacy um, episode when we're discussing the, uh, the final episode, is just the, the sheer loss of faith in government um, that was already at pace when Watergate was happening, but which Watergate really um, is the final 
stake in the heart of of the American public's um, faith in their government. And so before we kind of finish off, we should just take 30 seconds in between Watergate being exposed, becoming a media story, and Nixon resigning. As we talked about right at the very start in 1973, Lyndon B. Johnson passes away. And in the introduction we mentioned, but he grew his hair long, he went to live in a farm, uh, all of these kind of things. Was LBJ trying to be a hippie? <laughs> yeah, this is one of the things that's always said, that the reason LBJ grows his hair long is that he's actually secretly saying he's in favour of the anti-war protesters and stuff. First of all, no. Right, so he's, I don't think he's doing that because he actually gives Nixon quite high marks for his foreign policy. Therefore, I, I don't think that's the case. He, he really disagrees with some things Nixon's doing elsewhere, but yeah, he, he sort of agrees with the, the, the trying to stay the course in Vietnam. But um, he there is an aide that basically claims uh, Robert Hardesty, who was one of his aides, and he says that he, Hardesty was growing his hair long. And so he tells the president, you know, the LBJ's like, what the hell are you growing your hair that long for? And he's like, Mr. President, I'm letting my hair grow so no one will mistake me for those SOBs in the White House. Uh, you know that bunch around Nixon, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, they all have very short hair. And so Johnson apparently nodded. And then the next time, hardest they saw him, his hair was growing over his collar. So that's the, that's the sort of story behind it. Um, what, what, for the motivations one can never really choose. I mean, um, as a, as a, as we hinted in the intro, LBG has a bit of a sad end. Um, he's in a lot of pain for the rest of for most of his life with heart problems, um, before eventually succumbing in January of nineteen seventy three. But as as mentioned, his last public appearance reinforces his sort of, you know, his most positive legacy. Um, where he makes makes an appeal for further moves in civil rights. Um. Which is maybe, maybe a fitting end. Um, if 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 you're on the generous side of the LBJ debate, and that is where we will end with LBJ passing from uh, the scene. This being our penultimate episode, the very final episode will examine the legacies of LBJ's America from the 1970s up to the modern day. The legacies of the Great Society, the Vietnam War, corrosion in faith and faith in government. All of these kind of things are going to be what we explore in our very final episode of LBJ's America, The Legacy. So I hope you're looking forward to our final episode. Thank you and goodbye. Listen up, I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win.